0: podcast. My name is Karen Drury. On this podcast, we'll be talking about something we covered in our mind stretch last month, organizational justice. How many times have you heard the word "It's not fair, and not just in the playground, from children, but everywhere. Global inequality has never been greater, from discussions over the gender pay gap, to shocking figures about wealth distribution, Fairness and equity are both hot topics. But what about fairness in organisations? Despite being studied for more than four decades, you don't hear much about organisational justice in management approaches. This is despite a lot of really positive findings. For example, that justice perceptions are consistent predictors of employee attitudes and behaviour that it connects with the psychological contract which is so important for engagement, that it's a significant indicator of trust and strongly linked to organisational citizenship behaviours or going the extra mile to you and me. But is there just one type of justice? Over the 40 years it's been studied, scholars have developed three or four types of justice depending on which academic you read. But before we go any further, I asked two people who attended the Mind Stretch what it meant to them. First up, with a very elegant definition, is Gary Saunders, HR Director at the Marine Management Organisation.
1: Justice results when people think the outcome is fair and it's been arrived at through a process that's fair and they feel that it's fair, so there's an emotional element as well, so it's not just intellectual.
0: In the British Library, I caught up with Adam Hibbert, a change and communication consultant. Adam went into a bit more detail.
2: It's a slippery concept, isn't it? I think I think I start from a distributive perspective on this. I mm. think most of us expect um, outcomes that are sort of commensurate with what we put in, and we like to see systems that recognize both strong and weak contributions that said i think in practice as practitioners we tend to find that procedural justice is uppermost in a lot of minds particularly because of the legalities involved and so that also comes to have a big influence on on how people perceive the, the, the relationships they're in
0: Adam mentioned distributive justice, which does indeed translate fairness as you get out what you put in. What you put in might be effort, experience and education. What you get out might be wages, job security, promotion. But not everybody in academia believed that that was right. They saw that some people may not have equal access to things like education and therefore would always be disadvantaged. They viewed justice as the process of getting to an outcome, how fairly things are decided, and whether the way the process works is consistent without vested interests, and using up-to-date and accurate information to get to that decision. It also includes whether decisions can be revisited, whether the outcome is morally right, and how the people impacted have been consulted. Adam mentioned it. It's called procedural justice and it is particularly concerned about voice. So it's hardly any surprise that as a communications professional, Atom is really interested in the concept. Academics have developed two other types of justice, both also concerned with communication. There's interactional justice, which is about how truthfully and respectfully people are involved in the decision, and whether there was any other decision that could be made. So... How things are communicated is important here. And finally, there's informational justice, which is about the truthfulness and accuracy of explanations. That's the what. So, while it sounds a bit complicated when put in academic terms, really? How weird are these concepts? That people affected by a change should be consulted, treated respectfully, and that what's done should be done consistently and without a skewed agenda? that change should be honestly and openly communicated? Back to Adam.
2: Look, there are always loads of really well-meaning people involved in these processes and I think uh, by and large we all take the, the underlying principles quite seriously as professionals and, and want to make sure that we've got robust and sort of plausible outcomes from, from these things but as we all know also uh, the imperatives in those situations are rarely humane. They are very instrumental and very brutal in some ways. There's a discipline uh, of the market and people get hurt in the process and and the the question is how you go about doing change in a way that doesn't cause unfair hurt or unnecessary hurt. Um, So there's a lot of stuff about making sure that people feel respected in the process, telling them early, telling them often, everything that you can share. Obviously there are sort of, there's a professional experience that comes into play there about what, what constitutes healthy sharing and what's oversharing and, and will result in you having to retract stuff later. You know, I've been in situations where you've done a very, very positive active engagement with people going through quite a major change but then having got to the end of that process Finding that the change hadn't been severe enough in terms of achieving its cost targets, it, and then having to put everyone through an emergency much more going in a short, short time frame to, to make up the difference, which rather undid the, the, the good work that had gone before. Through those experiences, I think, um, change professionals become more canny about how to, how to lead a change and to make sure that they're not causing undue harm.
0: The issue of transparency is an interesting one. People might consider that justice isn't being done if it's not seen to be being done. And most people would see the HR department as the distributor of justice, but it may not be able to be transparent either. Gary Saunders again.
1: The result of an HR process doesn't always feel fair to the people who have been affected it's sometimes impossible to, to run a transparent HR process that's also fair, because it's not fair to me if, if, if someone makes a complaint of, of bullying harassment, for example, that's a very serious type of allegation. I wouldn't want the, the whole organisation to know what was going on. Um, I'd want that to be kept confidential. But clearly the, the keeping of confidentiality means that the process isn't transparent so it might feel to an outsider as though it's not it's not fair all, or it's not it's not an obvious justice.
0: So we might not be able to fulfil the principles of organizational justice in change communication because of illegalities. And it may not work with HR because of confidentiality. But before we decide that organizational justice is useless outside the ivory towers of academia there are studies to show that perceptions of fairness affect the extent to which employees accept and adjust to organizational change from major restructure to the implementation of a smoking ban interestingly the reverse is also true in 1990 gerald greenberg developed a case study of two sites in a manufacturing firm that was introducing temporary pay cuts in site a Employees were given detailed information about why the company was cutting 10% from everyone's pay, and this was delivered in person by a senior executive who gave a thorough explanation, emphasised that the cuts were happening to everyone, and who said how sorry he was. He also said that of the available options, this was the least worst. This was contrasted with Site B, where employees received limited information presented indifferently by a manager who didn't take questions but left, saying that he had a plane to catch to another meeting. And in his announcement, he told employees that this was just business and offered no apologies. The company then measured the amount of material theft in both sites. The level of theft in Site B, with careless and incomplete communication, was more than twice that in Site A. These findings suggest that where pay cuts have to be made, the damage can be minimised if managers provide information of sufficient quality and quantity to convince people that it was unavoidable. They also, obviously, need to convey genuine regret and concern for the impact that pay cuts invariably have. This is only one study, of course, but there are plenty of others and a number of meta-analyses as well. So whatever the rights and wrongs of organisational decisions it seems that following the principles of organisational justice can have a significant impact on how those decisions are received. People may not like the decision but they may be better able to live with it if they feel that the process, the communication and the distribution of pain has been done fairly. So given all of that. Why is an organisational justice better used, more used, used at all? Gary Saunders.
1: I was thinking about this this question about you know how do you make a change process feel just to the people who are going through it, and I couldn't find any change model that even referred to justice. And they talk about communications, but. Where, where anybody has come up with a change process that that includes a discussion of how you make it just, there's no doubt. I think that, that that if you understand why the decision was made and how it was made, and you feel that both of those things feel right, you're more likely to to feel that the, the process is just. But it, it, it feels as though it's a byproduct rather than a name.
0: So there's something about models, the blueprints we use to organise change. But that sounds a bit of a fudge to me. Isn't this about a failure of leadership? If we can't run our organisations with justice,
1: is it is it one of these things where a lot of people just feel uncomfortable because it could be opening them up or their organisation up to challenge in a way that, that they find difficult to deal with? It's a bit like the idea of communications in change is that you know you should keep people informed, even if. Some of the regular communications are nothing new to report this week. But if if you're going beyond that, if you're trying to explain to people not just what's happening but why it's happening in a way that might make it feel more just, then you're opening, you're showing people your homework and 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 therefore they might mark it. So if you take the view that that leadership is largely a transactional activity, then you wouldn't even think about putting that kind of (laughs) component into it, would
0: you? So... There's also something about our leadership skills here, but does that make organisational justice too difficult to use?
1: I think it might do, I, and and I don't think that means you can't do it. I think it means it's easier not to. I was struck by when you were talking about the the different kinds of levels of of justice, starting with distributive and going on from there. That actually, as you as you go up the hierarchy or down down the slide, depending on which way you're looking at it. It gets harder. It's harder to do, it's harder to achieve. Distributed justice, uh, pretty easy to, to demonstrate that in doing that, that every, either everybody gets the same outcome or everybody's treated equally. By the time you get to interpersonal, then you're into a whole different level of skills challenges for the, the manager or leader explaining it.
0: When I asked Adam about why he thought organisational justice wasn't specifically referenced in Change Efforts, He too had something to say about skills, but he also noted how changes in industrial relations have altered the way in which communication happens.
2: I think we've probably come a long way away from a context where an organisation would expect that degree of professional rigour from its changed practitioners. I don't say that to sort of lash myself with a birch twig. I I, I say to recognise the context in which we operate and in that context we don't have, typically, we don't have a powerful concerted employee voice in the form of unions, so we don't organise our internal engagement practices in the old mode of industrial relations where there would have been more rigour because it was understood as a far more critical relationship with one of your primary stakeholders. I think that these days the employees can be at the back of the queue very often in terms of what the priorities of the organisation are. Clients typically going first or shareholders. All of those voices tend to be louder in the organisation um, and what you really need then in that context when you're handling change for employees is people who are very effective operators. You're not desperately looking for a voice at board level that says to you, actually, there's an opportunity cost to that choice. So I think our profession is both more prominent in many ways than it used to be, but at the same time, I think it has lower standards than it ideally would um, uh, to people like you and know, me who, who look at this context and think actually that the fact that the voice isn't shouting loud at board level doesn't mean that it's not there and, th- and there is clearly a huge opportunity cost in terms of lost productivity, to, you know, discretionary effort. We need to talk that language a bit more but we also need those sort of that professional self-respect to bring that to the organisational change.
0: As regular visitors to the Mind Stretch will know, I've been a member of the Centre for Evidence-Based Management for a couple of years now. FE3 as a company has always tried to work in a way that's based on the best available evidence and the Mind Stretch is about highlighting concepts which seem, from an academic perspective, to provide a firm foundation to achieve results. The evidence for organisational justice is out there if you care to look for it and I was relieved to hear that, as a long-time fan of the concept, Adam holds organisational justice close to his heart and close to his practice.
2: As professionals, we, we need those sorts of yardsticks that we can assess our little models and procedures against because it's very easy to get wrapped up in the sort of inner logic of uh, you know, Kugler-Ross, Cherish, Co., or what have you, and think that you're being very systematic and methodical, but without those sort of wider professional principles guiding your judgment, I think it's possible to actually disappear off garden paths that look attractive but end up causing damage. For me, it's like a Hippocratic Oath, or it's at that level, it's a a principle to have in mind that helps you really take a a critical stance towards the systems and the procedures that your organisation adopts and embraces and and to help you spot the gaps and and bridge them and, and make the work that you do better than the process that's provided for it.
0: We've talked a lot about change but the concept of justice applies to lots of elements of organisational life, performance appraisal, disciplinary procedures, even perceptions of promotions to name but a few. While change provides us often with the most stark examples of organisational justice, or not, as the case may be, the foundation of a healthy, trusting relationship between employer and employee is built in these small elements. Whether this is an issue of models, or skills, or of leadership, if employees see that their performance is appraised in a way that's accurate and unbiased, if they're treated respectfully and consistently during performance issues, and if they feel that getting to the top of the organisation is done through merit, Doesn't that sound like the start of something positive and productive? Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was inspired by a FE3 Mind Stretch run earlier this year. If you'd like to attend a future Mind Stretch, please send an email to karen at fe3.co.uk. Thank you to Ben Sound for the music.